This is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about just about everything. And this one is one of the great music stories that we've ever told, and also one of the great American stories ever told. He did it without any formal music training, and by himself. In 1918, while serving in the U.S. Army, he wrote, God Bless America. But he couldn't sell the song, and so he did what songwriters do when such things happen. He stuck it in a drawer. He dusted the song off in 1938 as Hitler was rising to power in a far-off land and tried to sell it again. This time, there was a buyer. Kate Smith recorded it, and the rest was history. The song became America's unofficial national anthem, right up there with America the Beautiful. Writing one anthem would be enough for most songwriters. But in 1941, he wrote another. White Christmas would go on to sell 100 million copies for Bing Crosby and become one of America's and the world's most beloved Christmas songs, right up there with Silent Night. Just like the ones I used to know Where the treetops glisten And children listen To hear bells in the snow If you turned Irving Berlin's story into a movie... Critics would say it was too improbable, too ridiculous. It's that American. He was born Israel Berlin on May 11, 1888, one of eight children born in Russia. His father was a cantor in a synagogue where Irving got his musical talents. But being Jewish in Russia in those times was hard. Anti-Semitism was rampant and it was ugly so ugly that the Berlin family was forced to move after their village was destroyed in a violent anti-Semitic pogrom. His family fled religious persecution and came into America, settling in New York in 1893. Like millions before and after them, they didn't come here to change America. They came here to have America change them. And theirs was a family in need of change. According to his biographer, Lawrence Bergreen, Berlin admitted to no memories of his first five years in Russia except for one of his father, quote, lying on a blanket by the side of a road, watching his house burn to the ground. By daylight, the house was in ashes. But there would be more tragedy to come. Indeed, Berlin's early life had more sad stories than the Old Testament, none worse than the loss of his father when he was a mere eight years old. Irving had no choice but to take to the streets of New York to help support his family. And to say those streets were tough would be an understatement, a poverty the likes of which poor people in America today would not even recognize gripped the Lower East Side of New York, 
the neighborhood where young Irving lived. There was no HUD, no food stamps, no Pell Grants, no government help at all. By the time he was 20, Berlin had stumbled upon his life's work. He took a job as a waiter in Chinatown where he discovered that his tips skyrocketed when he hummed various songs of the day. Singing cover tunes a cappella at dinner tables soon turned into a stint at songwriting. He collaborated with friends at first and soon got his break as a staff writer with a music publishing house in New York. His meteoric rise as a songwriter in Tin Pan Alley and then on Broadway started in 1911 with Alexander's Ragtime Band, which would become a hit by various artists, including Bessie Smith and Louis Armstrong. The song topped the charts when Bing Crosby recorded it. Come on in here, come on in here. Oh, you dog. Alexander's Ragtime Band. But ragtime music was not where Berlin's heart was. He wanted to create his own version of American music, one that appealed to the diversity and richness of his adopted nation. He described the audience he was trying to reach with his music, quote, My ambition is to reach the heart of the average American, not the highbrow nor the lowbrow, but that vast intermediate crew which is the real soul of the country. The highbrow is likely to be superficial, overtrained, and supersensitive. The lowbrow is warped and subnormal. My public is the real people. Irving Berlin made good on his mission, creating the richest catalog of popular music by any songwriter in American history. It's been said that writing a song is a bit like giving birth, laborious and miraculous. Irving Berlin gave birth to over 1,500. He credited his productivity to an inborn work ethic. Sal Bernstein, Berlin's publishing manager, observed that, quote, it was a ritual for Irving to write a complete song, words, and music every day. He told anyone who would listen that he did not believe in inspiration. His most successful compositions were the result of work. Few men or women write so many songs, let alone so many standards. Fewer still write songs that become a part of our national identity. And when we come back, more on the remarkable life of Irving Berlin here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we return now to Irving Berlin's remarkable story. His catalog includes such standard as Cheek to Cheek, Always, Putting on the Ritz, Heat Wave, Let's Face the Music and Dance, and How Deep is the Ocean. Whenever we think of great poetry, our minds inevitably turn to the masters like Keats, Browning, or Shelley, and never to music. We seem to forget that some of our lyric writers are really fine poets. One such famous poet is Irving Berlin. Judy Garland now brings us one of Mr. Berlin's loveliest poems set to one of his most glorious melodies, How Deep is the Ocean? 
which Judy sings to mothers everywhere. How much do I love you? I'll tell you no lie. How deep is the What special gifts did Berlin have? What special qualities did his songs possess? Quote, his work isn't witty, but it's very down-to-earth, the late great cabaret singer Bobby Short told the Washington Post reporter Tom Shales, and it is amazingly natural. Another songwriter said this, composer Mark Sandrich, his songs didn't have any seams. They didn't feel like anybody wrote them. It was as if Berlin just walked down the street heard them, and they'd been there all along, and all he had to do was just reach up and pluck them out of the air. Berlin did all of his composing and playing without any formal musical training. He could not read or write music, and taught himself to play piano. He played almost entirely in the key of F-sharp, because it was easier for his untrained fingers to play the elevated and well-spaced black keys. He said this about that, quote, The black keys are right there under your fingers. The key of C, ah, that's for people who study music. Berlin loved to boast about his ignorance of music and believed it actually gave him a competitive advantage. Because he didn't know the rules of songwriting, he explained, he was free to violate them. It's a story about so many things, Irving Berlin's life story, hard work, creativity, and America itself. Tell me another country or his story is even possible. The man who gave us White Christmas was Jewish. The man who gave us God Bless America was born in Russia. You can't make that up. The only identity politics Irving Berlin embraced was being an American. No hyphens, no cynicism, no apologies. Just a whole lot of gratitude. In fact, God Bless America was written as a prayer seeking God's blessing and peace for America. It's why it resonated more in 1939 than when he'd written it in 1918. War was on the horizon again, even if Americans didn't fully know it. Over the years, the beautiful opening verse has been scrapped by most singers, though one singer always includes it in his performances. The great Irish tenor, Ronan Tynan. And here it is. So fair as 
from above, from the mountains to the prairies to the oceans, white with foam. God bless America, my home, sweet home. God bless America, my home, sweet home. In 1940, Berlin established the God Bless America Fund and set aside the song's royalties to the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts of America. It's generated tens of millions of dollars to both groups. And in a rare television appearance in 1967, Irving Berlin came out to center stage onto the Ed Sullivan Show, and he sang the song he wrote, first by himself, and then soon after, with Boy Scouts to the right and Girl Scouts to the left. Irving Berlin's music was a gift to the country that adopted him and transcended all religions, races, and ethnicities. It also transcended musical styles and time, too. Blue Skies reached the top of the charts when it was written in 1927. It made its way back to the charts in 1978 when country music singer Willie Nelson covered it. That's some legs for a song. Blue skies smiling at me Nothing but blue skies do I see. In the 1946 musical Annie Get Your Gun, Annie Oakley lamented falling in love with Frank Butler in the Berlin gem I Got Lost in His Arms. The lyrics read like a poem aimed straight at the heart, as meaningful today as when they were written 70 years ago. I got lost in his arms. And I had to stay It was dark in his arms And I lost my way From the dark came a voice And it seemed to say just can't recall but his arms held me fast and it broke the fall and I said to my heart as it foolishly kept jumping all around jumping all around I got lost America got lost in Irving Berlin's music, and from the dark, we can still hear his voice soothing us, healing us. Berlin kept to himself 
and he made no public appearances during the last decade of his life, except for an event to mark his 100th birthday celebration at Carnegie Hall. He died one year later from natural causes at the age of 101. In a letter to Alexander Wolcott half a century ago, Jerome Kern, another great composer of popular music who gave the country showboat, offered what may be the best and last word on the importance of Irving Berlin's work. Quote, Irving Berlin has no place in American music, Kern wrote. He is American music. Irving Berlin's story, here on Our American Story. How I felt as I fell I can't recall But her arms held me fast And it broke the fall And I said to my heart As it foolishly kept jumping all I got lost But look what I Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, arts, sports, history, and your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. While you're there, sign up for our free and terrific newsletter. You give us your email, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. Our five best stories each week, direct to your inbox. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we love talking to authors, and today we have a longtime journalist, Amy Sutherland. She's done all kinds of writing. She's worked in newspaper industry, and in the early 2000s, she started writing books and working on magazine pieces. The book she'll be talking about today is entitled, What Shamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. Here's Amy. People are always trying to change each other's behavior. The only thing I started to do differently was I started trying to change my husband's behavior by changing my behavior first. I started using my own behavior as communication. And that's the biggest lesson, I think, maybe, or one of the biggest lessons I got from the world of animal training is that your how you behave is communication. Amy Sutherland has found a unique way to interact with others. Many of us are trying to change those around us, which will leave us frustrated. What would happen if we just focused on changing our own behavior? Like in the 90s, late 90s, my husband and I adopted, uh, brought home a dog, our first dog as adults, a little puppy, an Australian shepherd we named Dixie Lou. 
and uh, she was a herding dog and she was a ball of fire. So my husband and I took her to a trainer and we had our sights set on teaching Dixie how to run agility courses. But to do that, we had to first take her to a, basically a, a, like a puppy obedience class. It was just my good luck that this trainer trained with all positive reinforcement, what in, uh, is called often clicker training. But uh, the, the thrust of clicker training is that training is fun and it's done with positive reinforcement, that there's no punishment as in there's the no uh, leaking, uh, jerking the leash, you know, barking orders at the dog. It's a much more civil and humane and intellectually challenging experience. That's basically how I first learned about animal training and not only how interesting it was as something to learn for myself as a human, but that it was a really interesting intellectual challenge to have that amount of self-control to learn how to work with another species and the payoff was humongous and that was getting to communicate with another species uh, in this case my gorgeous little dog Dixie Lou so I was super hooked on animal training and I had a friend who was an editor of a magazine and she knew this. She knew that I loved animal training and loved animals and uh, she also knew that uh, I had spent a lot of time in France and that I had workable French and so she gave me this great assignment to go to the set of 102 Dalmatians and do a story on the production there. The, the thing with a movie set is it sounds like like a super sexy story assignment but the fact is, what happens on movie sets is that you stand around a lot. So there was a lot of time to kill. Uh, but it was just my good luck that given it was 102 Dalmatians, that there were all these dogs on the set and with their trainers. But anyhow, it turned out they had all gone to the school I had never heard of. And it was Moore Park Community College's Exotic Animal Training Management Program, which has the appropriate acronym of EDEM. Um, and this was really the Harvard University, is the Harvard University for animal trainers in this country and it has a reputation internationally too. Um, so if you want to get somewhere in this field you ideally want to go to this school. So this like st actually it struck me as almost something made up but uh, you know once you get into the world of animals, it seems like anything's possible. So uh, a few years later, when I was looking for a book idea um, for my second book, uh, I remembered this school and um, thought that that had the potential for a book. And uh, I was completely right. It had more than enough material for a book. And I spent about a year and a half following these students. I was following them as they learned how to work with everything from emus to wolves to boa constrictors to tigers to uh, they had a trained hyena. They had loads and loads of parrots and they used the same progressive training methods using positive reinforcement to work with these animals and to get them to do all kinds of amazing behaviors. But it also became a, more of a life-changing experience for me than I expected because to learn how to work with these animals they had to learn sort of almost 
a philosophy. They had to learn a different way of thinking. And um, that way of thinking really started to get under my skin. I started to realize that the way that they were working with these animals and the ideas they were using and techniques that they were using, that if they could work with these exotic animals, that it might make sense to start using some of these ideas to improve my own personal relationships and the, the relationship I thought I would try some of these ideas with was with my marriage, <laughs> with my husband, the, with the homo sapien known as Scott Sutherland. One of the first times I did this, which I've, I've, I ended up writing about for the New York Times, was uh, my husband is a perpetual key loser. And this is a behavior that sort of charged in our house, meaning he would be looking for his keys, he'd be stomping around, and it was really hard for me to ignore the stomping. And so I would somehow always get involved with him looking for his keys. And sometimes I would help him actually look, or sometimes I'd make suggestions of how he could avoid this in the future. That never went over very well. But it would just end up turning into this drama. One of the lessons they teach the students when they work with the uh, exotic animals is that you should basically ignore behavior that you don't want. Meaning, when you pay attention to behavior you don't want, you are in some way potentially reinforcing that behavior. Say, for example, a dolphin trainer asks a dolphin to do a, you know, some kind of cue, like flip or whatever, but the dolphin doesn't do it, or the dolphin instead decides to spit water on that trainer, the trainer will studiously ignore that behavior. Because if they respond in any way, that dolphin might think that that was pretty much fun and squirt water on them again. So I use that same sort of thinking the next time my husband lost his keys, I tried what a dolphin trainer would do, and when I heard the stomping and the harumping, I just ignored him, and I did not get involved. And the next thing I knew, my husband had found his keys, and, you know, no drama, and I had actually felt kind of like I had wasted years and years of my life helping him find the keys in the past. So I ended up writing about this sort of new approach to my marriage with the help of animal training. For the New York Times, for their modern love section, I got an overwhelming response that I didn't expect. Within a week, I was signed up to go on to the Today Show. I had a movie deal that was in the works, and I had a book deal that was in the works. So it turns out that people <laughs> really need help with their some of their marriages and that I had found something that might do the trick for a lot of people. That is how I ended up writing my third book, which is what is called What Shamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. It's sort of the story about how I changed my thinking about how to deal with the human relationships in my life based on what I had learned from the school for exotic animal trainers. And when we come back, we continue with Amy Sutherland, her book, What Shamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. More importantly, her story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we've been listening to author Amy Sutherland, the writer of the book, What Shamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. And she's been telling us the story about her visits to the Exotic Animal Training and Management Program in Moore Park, California. She wrote a column about her experiences there and how she began to use the technique on her husband. By the way, I love that she called him Homo sapien, Scott Sutherland, and Homo sapien Lee Habib needs similar training. I don't just lose keys, I lose everything. Let's return to her story. After I wrote that column, some pe- I got actually mostly positive responses to that. But you know, some people were sort of bothered by it and they it didn't surprise me uh one of the things is they said is that you know why can't you just tell your husband um what you want him to do you know like as if i hadn't tried that for most of my marriage i mean that's what we're all doing all the time right we are you know uh we're all trying to change each other's behaviors but we tend to do it verbally and we tend to do it often negatively, like with uh, criticizing or nagging or going on and on and about how we feel about something. It becomes very clear when you work with animals because you don't have that verbal component. All you have is your behavior. So you don't get to go back to an animal and say, oh geez, what I really meant was bloody bloody blah. Or, you know, hey emu, I really don't like it when you, you know, try to whack me with your head. That I saw the power of that with all these amazing things these trainers trained. So what a lot of people were missing is that, yeah, I was trying to change my husband's behavior, but I changed myself first. And the, the, the sort of end bonus for that, which I didn't think about at the time, turned out to be that in doing this, it made me a calmer person it made me um, a more self. I had more self-control. I got better at not taking things personally. It had this sort of transformative effect on my own personality. And since then, I would say that uh, it had the effect on my marriage of one. I quit nagging because one of the rules of animal behavior is that if you're using a technique and it's not working, it's not having any success, then you should stop doing that. I mean, that seems so obvious, but how many of us just keep repeating ourselves and nagging? I mean, I certainly did. So I stopped doing that, uh, and that was a relief to my husband, I'm sure. It certainly actually was a relief to me, I found, too, to not hear myself saying the same old thing again. What is the benefit of reward versus punishment? But the truth is, what most people don't know, is that all these ideas that inform modern animal training came from the world of human psychology. They came from the world of B.F. Skinner and um, behavior science. What he found is a living organism learns the most effectively when they are rewarded as opposed to being punished. This was, uh, you know, he studied this, he trained pigeons, but he basically was, you know, rooted in a scholarly, academic, psychological, human psychological world. To really be an effective trainer, you have to look in the mirror and sort of understand what it is that you're doing uh, that might be reinforcing uh, other people's behaviors. 
You know, how could it how could it start with you? You know, there's there's times it's not. But you have to always think about that and think about, you know, what you could be doing differently. The other thing that I had uh, I thought a lot about is um, uh, is in in the training world they have a saying that's called know your species and uh, what that means is that you understand the species of animal that you are working with meaning is it does it does it like to sleep at night does it like to sleep during the day does it uh, does it like cold weather does it like hot weather I thought about that with the people in my life like what were the behaviors about them that were dialed in, that were just like too much a part of their wiring, ones that I really am, was were never going to change or had to think about what was reasonable to expect. Like um, my husband, you know, I had not really expected to try to get my husband to quit losing his keys. That was, you know, he, he tends to be a kind of thinky person and he's often sort of, you know, not you know thinking of other things why he's doing you know the normal things like putting his keys down somewhere so he's not keeping track of them um, I, instead of putting my sights on that behavior I set my sights on changing what happened when we looked for his keys our lives would be much less frustrating if we didn't take things so personally this does not mean we don't have feelings but instead we see outside of ourselves and practice empathy because people have some of these behaviors really wired in and also in addition to that you might take how somebody is responding to you personally when in fact it's got to do with something other than you so I learned to take things less personally so for example uh, in the train in the animal training world uh, trainers, one of the big rules is that you do not take anything personally. You do not say they really discourage the students from talking about the animals liking them or not liking them. Because um, that's just too uh, anthropomorphic of a view. That is when we attribute human characteristics to non-human entities. They wanted them to always have a neutral sort of idea of what the animal was doing and not make it some uh, highly charged or emotional reason for why an animal was doing something. Because when you think that way, you might have trouble seeing why an animal is doing something. So I started thinking about that with people and thinking about when was the when were the times that I was taking what somebody did personally when in fact it had nothing to do with me. How has Amy's life changed in light of all this? I mean, I think one of the strongest things I learned is when is to know when to not respond. I've gotten so much better at that and to just you know, when I, it's the idea that, you know, that one of the things the trainers say is you get what you reinforce, right? That's like a universal rule. And uh, I think that's one of the most brilliant, boiled down uh, sort of approaches to life I've ever heard. So if you get what you reinforce, then by, you know, you start to think about, you get much better about not reinforcing and knowing when to either not say anything to leave the room, to disengage somehow. But she doesn't just practice these ideas on others. 
I mean, the thing is, is that <laughs> I use a lot of this stuff on myself to understand, like, when I can think through something and when I can't. When I should be doing online checking and when I shouldn't be. Because you got to be real with yourself about when you're clear in the head and what you can expect out of yourself. A lot of people are uncomfortable with the word training because it feels or sounds manipulative. But maybe it's not what we think. That brings up sort of like an issue that a lot of people have with training. A lot of people have a negative connection to that word. Oddly, because we have weight training and people train for sports and... There's a lot of positive ways it's used with people, but a lot of people associate the word training with dog training. And dog training traditionally, unfortunately, was very negative-based with a lot of punishment. That has changed, thank God. But I think that when you use that word, people often get their hackles up. Fact is, for me, is I think of the word as training, I equate it with teaching. I also equate it with communication. I think the world is slightly changing about that. I think there's a, a movement in this country. I actually spoke at a conference this summer, and it was a conference called Convergence. And the convergence was that half the room was animal trainers, and half the room were people who are already using these ideas with people. So. Uh, there's a form of clicker training that's called tag teaching and it's basically being it's it's using the clicker with humans um, and it's use they're using it the same kind of like bare bones technology to teach uh, people how to work on assembly lines to help people improve their golf swings to help surgeons learn how to tie uh, surgical residents, how to tie uh, surgical knots properly. They find that the same system of using a, a sound to mark when somebody gets something right works with humans just as it does with animals. So I think someday I won't seem like such a weirdo. <laughs> it's my hope. <laughs> when you begin seeing outside yourself, you start to see animals and people as individuals. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Faith. And that was Amy Sutherland. And again, her book, What Shamu, taught me about love, life, and marriage. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear and see all that we do. And send us your stories, your relationship stories, your lost stories, your love stories, any old story. Send them into ouramericannetwork.org. We'll do our best to turn them around and put them up on the airwaves for you, for all of you. Again, Amy Sutherland, her story, her book, here on Our American Stories. American stories. 
The first state to recognize Christmas as a holiday was Louisiana in 1837. By 1860, only 13 states recognized Christmas as a legal holiday. Five years later, by 1865, that number had gone from 13 to 31. What happened? The Civil War happened. The nostalgic yearning for Christmas at home during the war happened. What also happened were the little gestures that occurred on the battlefield during unofficial Christmas truces between the blue and the gray. So after the war, one of the ways President Lincoln saw to reconcile the nation was through Christmas. In 1870, Christmas was made a national holiday. Let's now take a look and see what's under the hood of this story. Sleigh bells ring, are you listening? Ah, Christmas. Up goes the tree, on go the lights. An exciting season of presents and parties only a Scrooge could hate. But where did all the traditions start? Why do we bring huge evergreen trees into our homes? How did Santa get the red suit, the sleigh, and the eight reindeer? And what about Rudolph? Today we are going to pull back the curtain to unveil the hidden history of our cherished Christmas holiday. These days, cities and towns seem to be dressing up earlier and earlier for the Christmas season. There are Santas at every shopping mall from coast to coast. And there are lights, lots and lots of lights. We like lights. As little kids, I think we all jumped in the family car and drove through different neighborhoods to see the lights. The first Christmas lights were invented in 1882 by Edison Company Vice President Edward Johnson. Later, General Electric offered a string of 24 bulbs for $12, which is equal to $280 today. This bright idea is often credited to a New England telephone worker. The real inspiration came from his job, where he worked for the telephone company, and it was to know the little light bulbs in the early telephone switchboards. That gave him the idea for what we now know as Christmas lights. The Christmas story is one we all know. After a rude refusal by a local innkeeper, Mary and Joseph bedded down in a barn in Bethlehem, where they gave birth to a son, the Son of God. Those are the biblical origins of Christmas. But centuries before Jesus walked the earth, early Europeans were celebrating light and birth in the darkest days of winter. Every December on the shortest day in the year, when the earth was tilted furthest from the sun, came the winter solstice. It marked the darkest day of the year, but also the time when the promise of longer days gave cause to celebrate. To honor the occasion, ancient Norse tribes held a 12-day festival. They called Yule. You have the crops brought in, you have the meat being slaughtered, you slaughter some of the farm animals because you can't feed them during the dark days of winter. So there's a lot of meat on hand. The beer has been made. It's perfect time for a feast. Fathers and sons dragged home the biggest log they could find and set it on fire. This Yule log burned for all 12 days of the feast and they brought evergreens, firs and holly into their homes. Over the centuries the concept grew and later it was co-opted into our modern Christmas tree custom. 
Today, picking out a tree is a family tradition. And in any given year, American farmers are growing 350 million trees on 15,000 Christmas tree farms. That's one Christmas tree for every man, woman, and child in the country. Here's Nigel Manley, director of the Rocks Estate Christmas Tree Farm in Bethlehem, New Hampshire. The biggest thing that I've heard from customers is, particularly with the balsam fir, when you open the door when you come home from work, you can smell that tree in the house. And that scent is what makes Christmas for them. That's the biggest thing for the Christmas trees. So what does any of this have to do with the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago? After all, that is where the story of Christmas all begins. But how do we know what we know about the birth of Jesus? We actually have two different sources from the New Testament for the Nativity. We have the Gospel of Matthew and we have the Gospel of Luke. They don't refer to one another, they may not even known about each other, and they tell us two different sets of things about what happened for Jesus' birth. And what we tend to do is we put these two stories together to get a kind of full picture that we call the Nativity. Matthew's Gospel gives us the Star of Bethlehem and the Wise Men. And no, contrary to popular belief, there were not three of the wise men. The Bible only mentions that they brought three gifts for the baby Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But the exact number of wise men is not included in the scriptures. There's a kind of symbolic value to these gifts. What they're doing is they're bringing really, really precious goods to honor this child with a very humble birth. And there's a, a message there about how we need to recognize this birth isn't really humble at all because this is a king being born. This is the first example of Christmas gift giving. But nowhere in the New Testament is it recorded when this birth actually happened. One of the few things that all scholars seem to agree on is that Jesus wasn't born in the wintertime. Now I know that's a terrible thing to say, but let me explain. The early followers of Jesus Christ weren't concerned with marking his birthday, partially because they expected his imminent return. So why bother creating a birthday? But this didn't prevent early Christian scholars and present-day historians from trying to speculate when he was born. The one thing you will get from their estimates on Christ's birth is that they all occur in the springtime. And that makes a great deal of sense, because one of the few details you'll find in the Gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus Christ is that it was at a time when the shepherds were with their flocks in the fields. That could not have been in December, because what we do know about the traditions of ancient Judea is that at that time shepherds took their flocks indoors so they wouldn't get cold at night, starting in November, and they wouldn't bring them back out again until March. So how did Jesus end up with a birthday on December 25th? Long before Jesus was born, the Romans celebrated many pagan holidays, particularly in December, and these end-of-year festivities set the stage for our modern Christmas holiday. This is Our American Stories. More on how Christmas came to be as an American celebration and our national holiday after these messages.
are American stories. And we're answering the question, why do we celebrate Christmas on December 25th? Let's pick up where we left off. One Roman holiday was Saturnalia, which began on December 17th and was a series of parties that would last anywhere from three to five or maybe seven days. And you can think of it as sort of a a big office party, but in togas. And only three laws governed Romans during the holiday. Number one, all businesses should be closed except bakeries, cookeries, and those that tend to sport and solace and delight. Number two, anger, resentment, and threats are strictly forbidden. Number three, no discourse shall either be composed or delivered except it be witty and lusty, conducing to mirth and jollity. The second party is New Year's. It was a five-day party, and it was quite enjoyable as well. And then in between Saturnalia and New Year's, there was already a birthday celebration for a Roman-related god on December 25th. That god, Mithras, was born and honored on December 25th. After Christianity became Rome's official religion in the 4th century, Leaders chose to absorb pagan traditions rather than outlaw them. But in a prelude to those who complain today about what a shame it is that we don't celebrate Christmas the way they used to. That Christmas has been commercialized. Well, 16 centuries ago, Archbishop Gregory of Constantinople urged that the Christmas celebration be conducted after a heavenly and not an earthly manner and he warned his congregants against feasting to excess, dancing, and crowning the doors. But as the church continued to absorb various ancient traditions, what emerged were two experiences of Christmas, one sacred and one secular. Each of these Christmases also had their own separate music, just like we have today. You have hymns in the church, they're sacred music, and they're sung in Latin. And you find gradually the development in the 12th century of Christmas carols. And Christmas carols are sung in the vernacular, they're not in Latin, they're languages everybody knows. And people enjoy these songs, and people sing them together, and very quickly there gets to be the tradition of not singing these songs in church. But medieval caroling was not just about caroling, it was about drinking. At every door, revelers begged for a gulp from the household punch bowl, getting drunker with every note they sang. So what Christmas looks like doesn't look an awful lot like a sort of solemn, biblically-oriented holiday. It looks like something else. It looks like it's always looked, frankly. It's this kind of festival of celebration and revelry. All of this celebration and merriment didn't sit well especially after the Protestant Reformation. One of the hallmarks of Martin Luther's message was to clear away from the entire church calendar all the feasts and saints' days. And Christmas was one of the many feast days in the Catholic Church, and Luther tried to get rid of almost all of them. But there were just too many people who enjoyed St. Nick's December 6th feast day. Besides feasting, this day also involved gift-giving. So what Martin Luther suggested was this. Instead of telling kids about St. Nicholas bringing gifts, they would tell the kids that the gifts were brought by the Christ child himself. 
How do you say Christ child in Luther's German language? Christ Kindle. That's right, Christ Kindle. Well, Luther's attempts failed, but Christ Kindle got swallowed up by Christmas and got transformed into Chris Kringle. Yet another endearing name for the big man in the red suit. So why did Luther declare a war on Christmas? He did because it wasn't mentioned in the Bible. One of the messages of the Reformation was go back to the Bible. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. Part of the logic behind that argument was expressed by an American Puritan of a later generation. Ezra Stiles, who was one of the first presidents of Yale College, who said this, Had it been the will of Christ that the anniversary of his nativity should have been celebrated, he would have at least let us know the day. By the 17th century, Christian reformers were losing patience with the rowdier Christmas traditions. They decided to ban Christmas altogether. There's a kind of backlash against Christmas. Among Protestant groups, you find a desire to not celebrate Christmas, a repudiation of Christmas as kind of a Catholic invention, frankly, something that the Catholic Church had allowed happen. In 1652, England banned Christmas. Ministers who preached about the Nativity on Christmas Day could be imprisoned. Churches risked fines if they tried to decorate their buildings. The law said that shops must stay open on Christmas as if it were any other business day. Now this was the law, but nobody said it was popular. Although people believed the Puritans had a lot of religious substance on their side, they enjoyed Christmas. But Christmas would have an equally hard time in New England during the early 17th century. Pious settlers from England looked upon Christmas with suspicion. The newly formed Puritan colony of Massachusetts wanted no part of the holiday. And in 1659, it banned Christmas too. The Puritans of New England were very well aware of the pagan associations with the celebrations of the winter solstice, and they wished to avoid any kind of association with that. One Puritan commentator said that Christmas was chastity's shipwreck. And another one in Boston said that men did more dishonor to Christ on the 12 days of Christmas than they did the entire 12 months of the year. During the Revolutionary War, America had still not yet embraced Christmas, which in one instance was a blessing. One of the key and most inspiring battles of the Revolution was the Battle of Trenton. This battle has been immortalized in the famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware River as he boldly stands at the front of the boat next to an American flag. Washington made that crossing on Christmas of 1776. One of the primary reasons that the Americans were able to prevail was because they surprised the Hessians, the German mercenaries who worked for the British, and the British at Trenton, New Jersey. Because they were all drunk, they had been celebrating Christmas, but the Americans did not. As the American colonies spread down throughout the southern coast, the settlers were less enthusiastic about banning Christmas because a great many of them were Catholic immigrants. And once Protestants got exposed to Christmas, they found it very attractive. By the mid-1700s, they had adopted many of their European Christmas traditions, keeping the rowdy Christmas behavior of the past alive. Early Republic records are full of instances where people in, you know, a gentleman's home in Virginia, they're having a nice Christmas dinner. 
when the local rowdies get word of it and pound on the door and they go through this very ancient ritual of give us some food and drink or we're going to throw rocks through your windows. And so there's, both those traditions are, are still there. But as America matured, so did its Christmas customs. Respectable middle-class Americans wanted to take the rowdy Christmas, the public Christmas that took place outdoors, and move it indoors. I mean, these are people who had property. They were afraid of destruction. They were afraid of losing things that they owned. So they want to take this public rowdy event and take it from the streets and bring it into the home and make the focus of Christmas around the family, around this private gathering that takes place in the house. This effort was most deliberate and most successful in rapidly expanding New York City. The city that never sleeps has shaped the modern secular Christmas more than any other city in the world. And it's really because of the efforts of two very gifted New Yorkers who lived there in the 1800s. They would reinvent old world Christmas customs to create our modern American holiday and they would mold our image of jolly old St. Nick. New York in the 1800s was a city that was alive with change. The population was booming. There was new industry. There were the new stores that were growing up that provided the foundation for what became the commercialization of Christmas. But it was not only a city that was alive with change, it was also a city that was alive with new ideas. Clement Clark Moore a New York professor of Oriental and Greek literature who helped create New York's Chelsea neighborhood and designed St. Peter's Episcopal Church had an idea that would change Christmas forever. In 1822, he wrote a 56-line poem he called A Visit from St. Nicholas, better known today as The Night Before Christmas. Almost single-handedly, he created the modern American version of Christmas. And when we come back, more on the story of Christmas in America and how it came to be. This is Our American Stories. For all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And that's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Our American Stories, and by the way, that great keyboard playing, there's a whole story to that keyboard playing in Charlie Brown's Christmas, and our annual Charlie Brown Christmas story will play, as it always does during the Christmas season, several times. But back to the story of Christmas and how it came to be here in America, we ended our last segment hearing about how a New York intellectual named Clement Clark Moore wrote The Night Before Christmas a poem that would forever enshrine the characteristics of Santa Claus. Let's pick it up from there. What's really interesting about Moore's poem is it distilled various traditions in the early 19th century and put them all together and added his own, Moore's own imaginings. Moore's poem becomes a 
path-breaking moment, a watershed, in how Christmas is celebrated. Moore's subject was Santa, as we know him today. His inspiration? Two legendary Christmas figures of the old world. One was Saint Nicholas, a 4th century bishop renowned for gift-giving, legendary for leaving presents in stockings. The other was Sinterklaas, the Dutch version of Saint Nicholas. Sinterklaas had merged a bit with Odin, the Norse pagan god of Yule, who flew through the sky on an eight-legged horse. Before the mid-19th century, Santa Claus comes in different shapes and sizes. He arrives, you know, on a boat, on a horse, uh, on a sleigh, and all of that sort of codified and narrowed down in America, largely in New York City. Both old world legends were rich in details, many of which Moore chose to leave out. One omission was a bizarre, dark, devil-like sidekick of St. Nicholas named Krampus, or Black Peter. And Krampus brought a switch to punish naughty children, or worse. They had horns, long red tongue, covered with fur, tail, and hoof. And he would come into the room right after St. Nicholas. And one scene in particular shows two little boys cowering because outside the door is this devil figure, Krampus. But Clement Clark Moore St. Nick embodied only good. Moore introduced several new characteristics for Santa. He dressed him in American fur, gave him a pipe, a huge belt, and portrayed him not as a priest, but a jolly dimpled elf with a twinkle in his eye. On his back he toted a sack full of toys for the children of the house. Moore also gave him a sleigh that he flew through the sky, led not by a horse, but by eight reindeer. But a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. <laughs> Each with its own name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen. On Comet, on Cupid, on Donda, and Blitzen. Moore's poem, which has become the most famous poem in the English language, enthralled 19th century Americans. It created a new kind of Christmas, neither rowdy nor religious, but centered on home and family. In the decades that followed, artists would expand on Moore's imagery, but his would be the vision that would endure. One interesting thing about the poem is that book editors actually changed the last line. In Moore's original version, it was, Happy Christmas to all and to all a good night. Most books change happy to merry. As iconic as Clement Clark Moore's Santa was, he still wasn't the fully formed Kris Kringle we know today. His Santa had no North Pole workshop, no elves, no letters from kids, and no naughty and nice list. Where did these details come from? The credit goes to another New Yorker, illustrator Thomas Nast. He took Moore's Santa and produced the definitive version for generations to come. Thomas Nast is one of the great illustrators of the 19th century. A lot of the images that we see today, he created. When you think about you know, the donkey and the elephant for the Democratic and Republican Party, he created it. The image of Uncle Sam that we've all come to know is a creation of Thomas Nast. 
And he also is the person who gave us our modern version of Santa Claus. In 1862, one of America's major magazines, Harper's Weekly, commissioned Nast to draw its Christmas illustrations. He transformed the Moore's jolly old elf into someone taller and grander. So he becomes your grandfather. Gives him the full flowing white beard, which is the image of a wealthy person in, in the Victorian uh, world. Um, he was wearing a red coat with white trim, black boots, the buckled belt, the pipe. Nass' image of Santa became indelible. And with every Christmas grew richer in its detail. Santa, one could say, has become America's national saint. Nass does this year after year. He creates lots of the things we associate with Santa Claus. The list of naughty and nice, living at the North Pole, and that becomes the image of Santa Claus. And by the mid-19th century, the Christmas tree, a variation of the ancient Norse custom, became the centerpiece to the family-oriented American Christmas, all because of one picture. On December 23, 1848, the London News published an image of the young Queen Victoria and Prince Albert with their family assembled around a Christmas tree, part of Albert's German tradition. England fell in love with it immediately. Two years later, this same image of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert was republished in a very popular American magazine with a couple of alterations. They took out Queen Victoria's crown and took off Prince Albert's mustache so that they looked a little bit more American. And it was a way of sort of essentially telling middle-class Americans who bought this magazine that this would be a tradition, this is a tradition worthy of your home. The Christmas tree had officially arrived in America. By 1856, President Franklin Pierce was putting one in the White House. In 1939, Copywriter Robert L. May was creating a whole new holiday icon, a red-nosed reindeer named Rudolph. The Rudolph figure is created for Montgomery Ward Department Store in Chicago. And they want to have essentially kind of a handout, a Christmas favor, if you will. So he writes a 38-page pamphlet in verse about this woebegone reindeer. Originally calls him Rolo the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Towards the end, they decide to need something with a little more punch. So it becomes Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And it's a huge hit. Ten years later, in 1949, May's brother-in-law, songwriter Johnny Marks, set the Rudolph poem to music. He wrote the song and gave it to Gene Autry, and Gene Autry didn't like it. He didn't even want to record it. And Gene Autry's wife said, no, this is a good song. You need to record it. You know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen, but do you recall the most famous reindeer of all, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Autry finally agreed to record the song, but only as a B-side to one of his records. It became the biggest hit of Autry's career. All of the other reindeer used to laugh and call him names. They never and this is Our American Rudolph Stories. And by the way, that's why you listen to your wife. Gene Autry listened to his wife. Smart man. And by the way, imagine Rollo the Red-Nosed Reindeer. What a mistake. When we come back, 
chock full of information. That's what we are here on this show. Answers to your questions. I know I'm learning a lot. Thanks, Hengler, for putting this together. Greg, as always, does a great job on these pieces. One last segment about all the things you didn't know about Christmas and how Christmas, as we know it and celebrate it, came to be. This is Our American Stories. American Stories, our our special broadcast on how Christmas came to be in this country. And I've learned a lot, and I know you have too, and now it's time to close out the hour, the final chapter in this story. Another classic Christmas song from around the same time was written by a Jewish immigrant from Russia, Irving Berlin, and sung by Bing Crosby. This Christmas song is the most beloved and celebrated song ever written. It's a song that was heard for the very first time on Christmas 1941, just 18 days after Pearl Harbor was bombed. The song is White Christmas. I'm of a white Christmas just like the ones I so the song doesn't really catch on. It's the spring of 1942. We've just gone to war. But it catches on in the fall of 42, which is when America is really approaching its one-year mark of being at war. And these now hundreds of thousands, soon to be millions of GIs, are going to be spending their first Christmas away from home. And that's where that song has that real heartstring-pulling, nostalgic feel to it, that the record sales just skyrocket in October, November, December of uh, 1942. White Christmas is the most successful single ever released, and it has been for more than 60 years. According to the Guinness World Records, the version sung by Bing Crosby is the best-selling single of all time, with estimated sales in excess of 100 million copies worldwide. The homespun values at the heart of White Christmas were what Americans at home and those fighting abroad longed for. In 1946, Americans found those values in the reigning classic of all Christmas-themed movies, It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life started life uh, as a short story called The Greatest Gift by uh, Philip Van Doren Stern. And it wound up in the hands of Frank Capra, who had just come back from World War II, uh, where he had shot the Why We Fight series of, of propaganda films for the U.S. Army. The Oscar-winning director crafted a sentimental masterpiece about a man named George Bailey, a man who sees the world as it would be had he never been born. Mother, what do you want? Mother, this, this is George. I, I thought sure you'd remember me. 
The impact this movie has had on the movie industry can be seen in every Steven Spielberg film. For inspiration, Spielberg has said that he watches It's a Wonderful Life before starting any new film. And whenever he goes on location for a new film, he takes along a copy of It's a Wonderful Life to show his cast how movies should be made. And it also must be said, the kiss between Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed is hands down the greatest kiss in movie-making history. Now you listen to me. I don't want any plastics, I don't want any ground floors, and I don't want to get married ever to anyone. You understand that? I want to do what I want to do. And you're... And you're... The broadcast success of It's a Wonderful Life proved that Christmas and television were a powerful combination. By the 1960s, baby boomers were enjoying a golden age of holiday TV. There was a golden age of Christmas specials that began about in the mid-60s and went into the mid-70s. These specials were aimed specifically at children, although were sophisticated enough to entertain the adults that were in the room. After Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol in 1962 came a flurry of animated specials. But in 1965, one Christmas special featuring a little round-headed kid seeking the true meaning of Christmas topped them all. Here's Lee Mendelson, the executive producer for A Charlie Brown Christmas. In 1965, we got a call from the McCann Erickson Advertising Agency who represented Coca-Cola. They said, have you and Mr. Schultz ever thought of doing a Charlie Brown Christmas show? And I lied and said, absolutely. So I called uh, Sparky, our nickname for Mr. Schultz, and said, um, I think I just sold a Charlie Brown Christmas. And he said, what's that? And I said, it's something you're going to write tomorrow. Mendelssohn and animator Bill Melendez had to create an animated special in just six months. They made radical creative choices, like using child actors for the voices. Here's Peter Robbins, the voice of Charlie Brown. I was nine years old. They were eight years old, seven years old. We're all in one recording studio, bouncing off the walls, playing with the drums and stuff, because it was a recording studio where, like, the Doors recorded their albums. The work progressed, but time was running out. We did end up finishing it just like a week before it went on the air. Then we took it to CBS, and the three fellows there didn't like it at all. And they said, we're going to have to run it because it's scheduled for four days from now. But, you know, nice try, but it, it just doesn't work. So as we went through these minefields, it's amazing it ever even got on the air. One issue that concerned everyone was Schultz's insistence that the show quote the Bible. One of us said, you know, do you really think we can, you know, animate a kid reading from the Bible? Do you think we can get, get this through? And I remember he said at the time, well, if we don't do it, who will? Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. He built staged it in a very, very simple format. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And the way that wonderful actor, Chris Shea, read it. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, 
goodwill toward men. It became, you know, one of the really indelible moments, probably in animated history. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Then, in 1983, author and humorist Gene Shepard immortalized his childhood in an autobiographical account of One Boy's Christmas. Here's screenwriter of The Christmas Story and the voice of Ralphie as an adult, Gene Shepard, telling us about his real-life childhood encounter with Santa that inspired the most memorable scene in the movie. You know, I'd been thinking for weeks what I wanted for Christmas. I figured the best thing to do is to tell Santa Claus about that. And I looked up at that Santa Claus, and he had these big, watery blue eyes and a huge beard and all, and he's looking me right in the eye. And he was so impressive that my mind went blank. Ho, 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 then what's your name, little boy? It's like if all of a sudden you're, you're sitting on the president's lap, and he says, what would you like me to pass in legislation, Sonny? I mean, your mind's going to go blank. You can't remember any of this stuff. And so at that point, Santa Claus looked at me and he says, All right, <laughs> how about a football, kid? How about a nice uh, football? A football. I wanted a BB gun. <laughs> so he pushed me off his lap, and this elf grabbed me and threw me down a slide that went down into the snow. And I laid there for a minute, and I knew that I was not a fit person to talk to the great. Santa Claus was obviously a star. These days, the glow from our holiday lights and television sets help banish the cold, dark winter nights the way the Yule logs and bonfires once did a thousand years ago. People make up holidays. Traditions are invented. But there are uses for those cultural tropes that stay with us for centuries. There's something about the deeper meaning there that is singing to our bones and we hear it and we think, yes, that's the tradition and that's what I want to celebrate. For as long as we can remember, we bring in our greens and turn on the lights. We hang our stockings and sing our carols in church and in the streets amidst the chaos. We even find time to rejoice at the birth of a child 2,000 years ago. Something touches America somewhere down deep in his belly button about Christmas. He can't really explain what it is about Christmas that he enjoys so much. <laughs> he just knows that when all those red and green lights go up, you know, on the street, and you see Santa Clauses walking around with their bells, that something happens to you. You enjoy it. Now, you can be cynical all you want, but you still enjoy it. From our family at Our American Stories, we'd like to say to you and yours, Merry Christmas to you all, and to all, a good night. And this is Our American Stories, and again, that's all Greg Hengler and all the folks he works with putting these great pieces together. And by the way, one thing that really struck me through the piece, and I'm sure you had your favorite, but Irving Berlin was a Jewish man and he was from Russia. And this one man gave us two great American standards. A Russian wrote God Bless America, and a Jew wrote White Christmas. And this truly 
is the most American thing about America. That I could say a sentence like that. We can only say something like that in this great country. And so we talk about Christmas, we talk about America here on Our American Stories. Have a blessed Christmas. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.